the masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? Side chatters as we explore the world around us, it's seeming more and more like the realms of science are not reflecting to us the culmination of human knowledge and unbiased progress, but rather a carefully crafted paradigm in which the lab coat clad quarantiners have roped off areas that interfere with the profits of their monopolistic paymasters, and the capstone cabal has made sure to strategically structure their fancy educational institutions to leave any information that might lead to opening these doors scattered across the cutting room floor. But there are plenty of rabbit holes full of erased history, dismissed discoveries, and destroyed scientists to look at for all those curious enough to take the journey, and that's what we're doing here today, specifically in the realm of that mysterious, magical, and essential element, water. As many of you know, we're methodically working through a series of chats that revolve around alchemy and the elements with Plus member and wise sage Shamanjaneer. So far, we've knocked out two previous shows. First, we started with the air episode, where we talked about ether theory, that wild little substance called Ormus, and the mysterious airships of the Sonora Aero Club. And then we followed that up with the Earth episode, where we talked about the advanced permaculture practices of Native Americans, engineered abundance, enriching the soil through strange means, and the power of the biochar process. And today we're tackling the realm of water alchemy, talking about some of its under-the-radar qualities, and exploring the work of brilliant minds that they don't want you to know about. Back in the saddle for another wild ride, my friend and yours, the Shamanjaneer. Welcome back, man. As always, an excellent introduction. <laughs> Thanks, man. And I am really psyched for this one. You sent me so many weird bits of information and research, and it, it's all pretty internally consistent. It really does seem like a lot of secrets are being kept about a substance that covers the majority of the planet, makes up the majority of our bodies, and could be fine-tuned to produce effects that seem damn near magical. So... This should be a lot of fun. How would you like to set the stage? Where do you think we should start Intro to Water Alchemy 101? Well, let's just start with what people know about water, since it's, you know, you drink it every day, you bathe in it, yeah. it falls from the sky. <laughs> so everybody's familiar with it. You can't escape it if you want to. It's essential to life. So... Most people know that it has a chemical composition, H2O, ice floats, basically what we've talked about up to this point, and that it's used for heating and cooling. Mm -hmm. And that's about it. Most people, they're like, okay, well, that's that's great. That's water. <laughs> yeah, what more do I need to know? What more do I need to know? You know, they just take this kind of, it's in a beaker, and it has a certain spectrum, and and that's about it. You know, just standard stuff, right? It's a liquid. <laughs> right. But when you get into it, even just the fact that ice floats is a special thing. When you think about solids, liquids, gases, there's a scale of density that is, you know, the same with most other materials. But when it comes to water, why does a solid float on the liquid? Yeah. That's not normal. Now, is that because it has air bubbles in it, perhaps? 
it has to do with the way that the water gets structured as it approaches that four degree C anomaly point was what they call it. So at four degrees Celsius is the densest water becomes. Hmm. So basically either side of that getting colder, getting hotter, it becomes less dense. Gotcha. Now we're going to get into that a little later, but from what Professor Pollock is saying, that's due to a different structure. Right. You know, and it being able to be in a more dense conglomeration of the atoms. Yeah. The Gerald Pollock stuff is probably my favorite of anything you sent because it's just so interesting to think that there could be a fourth phase of water other than liquid solid gas, other than the ones we think of. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't remember exactly when that goes back to, but I think maybe the 1800s or something like that. Like somebody postulated that there was a fourth phase of water. And there was also the polywater stuff that came up in the 1960s where they thought they found another kind of water. But then it ended up being dismissed because they said, oh, well, you know, these huge changes in the properties of the water that we're seeing, that's due to contamination. And it's like, wait, if you're seeing huge changes in the properties of water due to a little contamination that you couldn't even detect initially, isn't that in and of itself interesting? <laughs> right right it just seems like that was another excuse that was the swamp gas of its time a reason to dismiss something that seemed really interesting that might have opened up other areas of science that they're like "Uh, you don't need to look there there's nothing important here it was just some contamination yeah but if you think about just homeopathy on the face of it that speaks to homeopathy having the possibility for making changes in the way that water's properties are manifested by very small amounts of things. Even if it gets to the point where there shouldn't even be a molecule in there, there's something going on there. Right. And that was one of the big things that was an eye-opener with this stuff is because homeopathy is one of those areas that I have sort of come to dismiss as pseudoscience, as some new agey bullshit, because... Uh, I've just been convinced by the mainstream. But now revisiting it, it seems like maybe there is something to it because you shared a lot with me about DNA and water memory and how it can actually keep memory to a degree. And so maybe it's something more than just dilution because I think a lot of people think of homeopathy and why they can dismiss it is because it's just dilution. It's just mixing it with water and then selling more. And you can see the capitalistic reasons why someone would do that. So that's partly why I've dismissed it. But I guess there's something to water that actually might enhance that or magnify it or in some way keep it working. So if you look at the basic structure of water, it's what they call a polar molecule. So that means that it has a side with a more positive charge and a more negative charge, which means that you can get these things kind of linking up, you know, like those little monkeys in a barrel that you had as a kid. You know? <laughs> So you can have them kind of making different structures and hanging off of each other and kind of 3D conglomerations of water molecules in the bulk of the water. And from some research that was done by Luc Montagnier, he found that just using electromagnetic signals, they were able to cause water to reconstitute 
DNA when, when given the correct enzyme to restructure the DNA. So the information was actually in the water. Right. So there's a structure that is able to be built up by, in his hypothesis, is that it's due to these structures in the water acting as resonant cavities and kind of entraining these electromagnetic signals into the water structure itself. Right. And just to give people a little bit of context, you shared with me a documentary that's about this research. And in it, I guess it's Luke's predecessor, but he deludes DNA to the point of saying that it would be one drop in the Atlantic Ocean. And then they brought back the whole DNA strand or all the information just from the little pieces that would be in that water. At, no, at no, such no, not even, not even that. It's even more cool than that. Okay. So, <laughs> so what they do is they, they have this sample of somebody with cancer. Or I know, wait, no, it's HIV. It's somebody with HIV because that's what he got his Nobel Prize for, this discovery of HIV. Right. And then basically what happens is they dilute that to a certain point. And I think he... He has the limit for what he found where they would still get a signal. And it's less than less than a lot of the homeopaths are using. So that might be part of the reason why some remedies don't work the way they're supposed to or something like that, because he basically found a limit to where the information was still encoded. But it was still that kind of dilution that you're talking about, which is massive. Mm-hmm. So basically what he did was he took that water where it shouldn't have a single molecule left he put that on essentially a microphone going to the computer. The re- computer recorded a wave file. They were just using the pickup coil to pick up the electromagnetic signals that were coming out of the water, from what I understand. And then what they did was they sent that recording file, like you've got right now recording my voice, and they sent that across the world to Italy from France. and then. In Italy, they put a sample of water, just, you know, water that hadn't had any contact at all with the previous water that was in France. And then they put that inside of a solenoid coil, essentially just a coil wrapped around the water beaker. And then they played back that file. And then what they did was they took that water that had that information encoded in it, and then they put in the enzyme that would be able to reconstitute the DNA. And then that is where the DNA came back and they were able to confirm that it was 98% identical to the sample that was from Paris. Damn. So that's what they showed in that documentary. (laughs) So that is a big deal, being able to transmit information and reconstitute a DNA pattern on the opposite side. That's a big deal. Through water. And so what would like implications of that be or what would be practical applications for it? Well, right now, I'm not exactly sure what the practical implications would be. But in theory, it's kind of like an aqueous transporter from Star Trek. Almost, you know? <laughs> it shows that information can reconstitute life in a separate area. So in theory, it's kind of like the first steps towards something like that potentially huh so how i mean you know just wild speculation would that be helpful for someone who wanted to make a 
directed panspermia argument that something landed here and unpacked itself on a planet that's largely made of water? Well, as we start to get into some of the other research, I would say that it tends to lend to the fact that there isn't anything that's really that magical about water creating life. Right. So you kind of need, you need the amino acids, which, you know, they've shown that in the conditions of primordial earth, that those building blocks of life were there. And then you need some sort of energy to get it to self-organize. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're talking about is a self-organizational property of this. We're just talking about a coil around a beaker of water causing <laughs> DNA to reconstitute. That's a big deal, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a big deal. And there's a lot of, obviously, the, you know, the establishment has said, oh, this can't be true, blah, blah, blah. And so he's basically out of Paris now. He's in China. So he's doing his stuff in China. But they're doing a lot of this chi energy kind of stuff. So it's a part of their culture. To them, it's like, yeah, whatever. it's not as big of a deal as it is for us Westerners. Right. And you mentioned James Randi, someone that a lot of people would know as a famous skeptic. It was a different scientist, a guy named Jacques. Benvenise. Benvenise. And, you know, Randi helped destroy that guy's career in the realm of water memory by moving the goalpost repeatedly. They'd have it work and then he'd be like, oh, well, I don't like this. I don't like this part of the experiment. You should tweak that. And they just tweaked it and moved the goalpost until it didn't work. And they said, ah, see, it's just some bullshit this guy's working on. Yeah, yeah. And because people respect Randy for some reason, I mean, you can dismiss all these realms. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the sort of stuff that happens where with another form of research that would be more conventionally recognized, they would just confirm it. But with this, What they love to say is extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But no, I say extraordinary claims require the same damn evidence everybody else. (laughs) You don't have to change the marker as you go along. And that's why this stuff a lot of times gets dismissed because of stuff like this. Yeah, man. And maybe we should go into the Gerald Pollack stuff a little more because uh, people probably aren't that familiar at all. But He talks about easy water, the exclusion zone. What about his work is so fascinating? So his work is so fascinating because it's something where you can see it at a macro scale. Like you can see the exclusion zone through a very low powered microscope, something that you could find in pretty much any lab. And you can see this zone build up. And so he's been kind of interrogating this effect. And basically what it is, is if you put a barrier or a boundary in water and it tends to repel water, it's hydrophobic, like Teflon or something like that, and a lot of proteins are hydrophobic, then what you'll see is this easy zone buildup, what he calls the easy zone. And basically what it is is these sheets of water that are in a different molecular configuration and basically it's these hexagonal sheets of water that are in a different molecular structure and they're able to stack much more closely than the ice and so when you're at this four degree c 
anomaly point, you get the densest stacking of these sheets. And then as they start to organize into ice, then they start to build up more volume and start to actually create the ice crystal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he talks about this fourth phase of water being a gel-like phase that I guess is just Oh, barely noticeable, or it's just on the surface of the water, I guess. He explains that the uh, Jesus lizard that everybody has seen running across water, the common explanation is, oh, well, that's just surface tension. But he says the math does not work for it to be surface tension. There has to be something else going on. And that's his hypothesis is that it's this fourth phase of water, this gel-like phase that would be, I guess, very thinly laid out across the surface of the water? Yeah. He's found that it's affected by light. It'll build up more layers in light. And actually, infrared light is the one that affects the most. But it also, I mean, what do they call that lizard, right? Yeah, the Jesus lizard. The Jesus lizard. So, you know, it also has ramifications with respect to someone like Jesus, who is supposed to be able to walk on water and there, there's other accounts of similar things happening but what if it's due to a field effect creating a much larger easy water sheet with a much higher strength and somebody could actually walk on water <laughs> so he's just a magician well i mean you're talking about getting into the fields that create quantum effects and things like that when you're talking about this stuff. You're talking about what goes on behind the scenes of quantum physics, you know, into the ether. <laughs> yeah, I did think that was so fascinating, too, that he talks about the relationship between water and sunlight and that those two elements, they play off each other in a lot of interesting ways that we just don't consider and that you could basically make a really good battery using just water and sunlight in the right configurations. He talks about basically a form of what I guess would be described as water photosynthesis, that maybe that even plays on our bodies. Because what is in our environment more than sunlight and water? And for they, these things to have interactions that we don't really get that deep into, I mean, that's a fascinating and provocative area. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, you know, you can get into like sun gazing and things like that, potentially. I mean, that's kind of its own whole thing, but, you know. Right. But maybe there is a mechanism there. I laugh. I think that is the goofiest thing, the sun gazing thing and the breatharians and people who just think, I don't need to eat. I'm just going to stand in the sun or look at the sun. There's that documentary, Eat the Sun, that's about that. But I mean, shit, maybe there is some kind of mechanism there, some type of water-based photosynthesis. Your body is mainly water, so why not? He mentions that saunas are so great for people, and we don't really know exactly why, and that this might be the mechanism. It's not light, but it's heat. Heat, and it makes you sweat, and there's just apparently something in there. Well, heat is light. It's it's just in the non-visible spectrum. Fair enough. <laughs> light is, you know... X-rays are light. Radiation is light, you know? Yeah. It's pretty compelling. And then kind of in line with that Jesus lizard thing or someone walking on water or there being a gel-like structure, he shows, he puts two beakers of water next to each other with water right up to the brim. 
and I guess he charges that he charges it with electrons and then he pulls the beakers apart and the water makes a bridge. Yeah. And that's so nuts because you would think that water as a liquid just would fill its container or as flat earthers say, it works to level itself out. But yet here we have a bridge made only of water. It's not supported by anything. It's just charged water. And he pulls it apart as far as four centimeters. And think about a four centimeter line that is just a water bridge. That's impressive. You got to think there's some kind of implications for that somewhere further to take that. Well, I mean, he's basically building up these layers in a tube. And it's kind of like forming a pipe of water made up of these sheets. So it would actually be a very similar configuration to something like a carbon nanotube. Hmm. When you think about it, you know, there's strength there. There's strength in that in that configuration. And, you know, these hexagonal sheets, hexagons are used in bee colonies and stuff like that. So it's it's a very strong structure. It's just like, man, considering the fact that so many people think that big pharma and the medical community has pretty much got it all on lock and got everything figured out. And here's this fundamental process or relationship between two things that are very huge in our lives. And it's just not talked about. I guess people wouldn't think that it would even be that important or whatever, but it clearly seems to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is that when you're talking about water structure, that this is just one of the water structures, but I think it's the most important because of what further researchers have said in the form of Victor Schauberger, because he had a big focus on the anomaly point. And if this is the structure that it goes into at that point, then that's, you know, that's what he was talking about there. But if there's other structures that are able to be formed, you know, it's kind of like when we thought the atom was just an atom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And then then we start to get into smashing them together. And then you see all these other things just start to pop out. It's kind of like that. Right. Where it just opens up like this whole different realm of what water can be at its fundamental properties. I mean, there's steam tables out there that they've known about since the 1800s that give you, oh, there's the phase change of water under these conditions and blah, 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 blah. But there's stuff like that that it just goes out so many different dimensions at that point when you start to talk about the different ways that water can structure during these phase changes and stuff. It's boggling. (laughs) It's boggling, really. I mean, you saw that website I sent you where there's this European, I mean, this uh, English researcher, and he's listing all of these different structures of water that have been found in microbiology and things like that. And it's it's just page after page after page of different structures that water can form in, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's really remarkable. And I think is, especially once we get into the cavitation stuff, and how that works. I mean, that that's just huge, huge for being able to transform the world. Right. Yeah. The cavitation stuff. I mean, let's explain that to people because basically it culminates in the idea of a universal 3D printer, right? I mean, the idea to manipulate all the elements. And if you can do that in a machine, you can 3D print anything. You don't have to just use that resin material that the machines today use. Well, yeah, potentially. I mean, I, obviously, this is just a concept, but 
there's a guy, Mark LeClaire at Nanospire Incorporated. He's been working on cavitation for years at this point. And what he's found is that during normal boiling, you get a bubble, right? Mm -hmm. And that's full of steam and it just, you know, expands and contracts. And once it releases the, the steam to the air or it collapses as it gives off heat to the water. But what he started to get into was looking at a pump where you get cavitation bubbles in there. And it's not really steam at that point. It's a more rarefied vapor than you find in a steam bubble from boiling. And what happens is as this bubble collapses in on itself, there's this spike of the water that, that starts to form as it goes in. And it basically, it's like a donut where the spike is going through the hole of the donut and it turns into this twisting spire. That's what he calls the nano spire. And it has the shape of a double helix like DNA. Hmm. And as the spire is coming down, I mean, it, it is extremely, extremely rigid. It's, I think he said it was like 12 times more rigid than tungsten or something along those lines. And then, it has this charge to it where the crystal as it's forming, it's developing these charges. And if you have something that basically attracts this positive head of the collapsing bubble, then it'll shoot off. And he was able to get it up to about half the speed of light. Right. <laughs> basically made a UFO. A mini UFO. And... We can get more into that, but basically what he was calling them was many supernova explosions as this spire of crystalline water that's harder than diamond, you know, is just drilling into whatever this bubble's collapsing into, what he calls a substrate. You know, you have to have this bubble within three bubble diameters of the wall, and then at that point, it'll just, as it's collapsing, it'll get attracted to it, and it'll just zoom, start to drill into it. But if you have something where there's a charge that'll attract that positive head, then it'll start to shoot off. And that's where he gets these effects. And so that's what he does in his reaction chambers. Damn. He has a, a charged plate where all of these little spires are shooting off towards it and digging trenches into it. And in the trenches, you find all these transmuted elements. And there's other researchers who've done similar things with just a plate. And then they have a, and this is outside of water, but it's a similar effect. And what he's doing is there's a plate of ceramic or glass or some sort of dielectric, and he's got a little finger, and he's shooting off what he calls, I think it's a electric allium clusters or something like that. And he calls them EVs. <laughs> but what they are, they're charges. Now, this isn't in water. This is just a charge of electrons but they're all clustered together and they will do a similar tunneling and they'll give similar effects where you see all of these elements strung out across the entire periodic table in these impacts. And so it's not just a property of water, it's a property of space and matter and being able to get these high energy impulses that go down into it. And you're able to start to transmute the elements at a point. <laughs> so whether it's these little charged clusters of electrons that are shot out of a metal tip or if they're 
just due to cavitation, there's two mechanisms right there where you could potentially build some sort of 3D printer that, you know, the substrate is just built up into the material you want as you go along. Yeah. And you can control it by controlling the velocity of the impact of this spire, or in the case of the electrons, it would be the energy potential of that as it strikes in either case. And then you're just programming what kind of material you want to build up there. So you could build up, you know, mixtures of metals that are all kind of interwoven together and you can have 3D channels that never have to be cut out. They're all just embedded in it or porosity you can make. I mean, you know, just like anything you can do with a 3D printer, but out of different materials. Right. And on a nanoscale. Man, like obviously the metals have, have that has huge implications. I mean, you could get into organite and perfecting that and all kinds of weird stuff there but you could basically ultimately 3d print a full aquarium filled with water right i mean you could make the outside <laughs> structure you could make the gravel at the bottom and then you could have it fill with water as it goes potentially i mean but i obviously this is just a concept but yeah you could do stuff like that <laughs> i love it man and in terms of the potential for an engine from Leclerc's work. I mean, is, is there a way to harness that energy into a pilotable engine, as far as you can tell, a pilotable craft? Well, so that's where we get into Moray B. King and his talk about hydrogen plasmas and using brown gas generators in internal combustion engines as a bridge technology into a free energy economy so what he proposes is you know being able to use these brown gas generators to create a hydrogen that once it gets introduced to the engine you're able to turn into a plasma and then that is actually what is driving the engine and you know this has been out for years but he talks about how all of this happens. There's a self-organization of the plasma due to these effects where plasmas are able to self-organize. And that goes back to a Nobel Prize from the 70s. Perengone, I think, was the one who discovered that. And it, it makes it so that, you know, it's something where it's modifiable onto what we already have. So you don't have to go out and buy a $200,000 new machine. You can modify what you have. But the big barrier to this is just getting people to realize that it's possible hmm. and getting it so that it can't be shut down by these people who want to keep these things out of the public eye. Right. There needs to be a, some threshold where the knowledge that this is possible reaches out to enough people and it becomes something where like, we know it's there. We know it's available. Let us have it. Stop <laughs> blocking it. You know, uh-huh. because they've had this stuff for years. I mean, all Victor Schauberger's were kind of like Tesla. It all just got gobbled up and it's somewhere and somebody's probably doing something with it but we don't have access to it it all gets gobbled up and we, we need to demand access to this information again and keep building it up on our own as well as long as we can right and we need to get more into victor schwaberger's work he seems kind of like the wilhelm reich of water yeah probably the most fascinating scientist in this water realm Walk us through a little bit about his background and kind of the progression of his discoveries. So 
Victor Schauberger was born in 1885 in Austria, and he did not want to go to university because his brothers went to university, and he saw the effect that it had on their thinking. Hmm. And so he decided that he wanted to go into a career in forestry. And by doing that, he became caretaker for a lot of unspoiled alpine forest. And while he was doing that, he observed quite a few interesting things in these forests that, you know, were kind of a holdover of a, of a medieval forest that was still around at the end of the 19th century, whereas a lot of European forests had been, for generations, been overworked by the Europeans. But these were basically royal lands that had been set aside and not used. So I'd like to read a little section of Alec Bartholomew's Hidden Nature. Perfect. Startling Insights of Victor Schauberger, where he talks about some of the things that he observed when he was in the forests. So this section is called The Water Wizard. Water was always Victor's fascination. One day, accompanied by his foresters, he came to a remote upland plateau where there was a legendary spring that emerged from a dilapidated dome-like structure. Schauberger ordered it to be pulled down for safety reasons. One of the older foresters warned him that if the structure were removed, the spring would dry up. Taking note of the old forester's advice and as a verifying experiment, Schauberger requested the structure be carefully dismantled with each stone and its place marked. When Victor passed again and two weeks later, he noticed the spring had indeed dried up due to exposure to the sun's rays. Immediately, he ordered the structure to be carefully rebuilt, and a few days later, the spring began to flow again. This taught him that water liked to flow in cool darkness. Victor's abiding interest was to discover how to generate energy using nature's own methods. He worked out how a trout is able to screw its way up a waterfall by hitching a ride on strong, levitative currents. Using this principle, the first generator he developed was called the trout turbine. To perfect this, he needed a more precise information on how a trout is able to stand motionless in a fast-moving current, indeed how it would suddenly accelerate upstream. The uh, trout is holding its station in midstream where the water is coldest, densest, and has the most potential energy. Victor studied the gills of the fish and found what he thought were wave guides, which would direct the water into a powerful backwards vortex current. Its shiny scales minimize friction in the water, and they also create scores more little vortices that amplify the upstream countercurrent, particularly towards the tail, which cancel out the pressure on the fish's snout. The zone of negative thrust is created along the whole trout's body, so it stays in the same place. These countercurrents can be increased by flicks of oxygen-deficient water expelled from the body. This, combining with free oxygen in the water, causes the water body to expand with the effect of the fish that's similar to squeezing a bar of wet soap in your hands. Another experience that Victor often quoted as significant for his growth and understanding occurred when he had a shot a chamois buck on a frosty night under a stream where he stood. Some green logs were bobbing up on the surface and sinking to the bottom as though they were dancing. And not only that, there was a large stone that, that seemed to have no uneven or ragged edges on it. And it began to float in this way. Schauberger developed his ideas, different forms of motion and shapes from these observations. Having seen how water could carry its greatest load on a cold, clear night, he made practical use of this observation. During the winter of 1918, the town of Linz was suffering a severe shortage of fuel as a result of the war when draft animals had been commandeered. 
There was a small stream that ran through narrow gorges, which was considered unsuitable for transporting logs, but he wanted to try out his ideas using the stream. His offer to help being accepted by the authorities, he described how he proceeded. I observed that the increased water level after the thaw takes place in the early hours of the morning when it is coldest, particularly at the full moon, although the volume of the water is apparently less due to its compression on cooling. It had more energy that enabled it to carry more sediment, gouging out deposits of sand, and concluded that in these conditions it would be able to carry a greater weight of logs. This was a principle that enabled him to turn upside down the current theories of hydraulics and particularly the methods of river and flood management. So basically during this period, Schauberger was building up his observations in an unspoiled wilderness where there were a lot of these etheric and energetic effects that you don't see in more dilapidated wildernesses. Right. So like one of the things he saw was this trout and it was kind of like cartwheeling in the air as it went up a waterfall, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, it wasn't like it jumped. It was just dancing in the air and it's going up over a waterfall. It's riding these levitational currents. I mean, this is stuff that you, you just don't see today. <laughs> right. But it's right there in nature, apparently. Evidently it was at some point, but you know, I think a lot of our waterways are so damaged at this point that you don't see these effects nearly as much. Right. And you mentioned in that paragraph that you read, water would be able to carry more on a cold, dark night was one of his observations. And doesn't that counteract what we were saying about the Jesus lizard? I mean, doesn't that fourth phase or the gel phase, isn't it light would help that? Well, so the thing is that, yeah, the light helps it. That's the moon. Oh, fair enough. And when it's coldest, so that's basically trying to get it to that anomaly point where the water is coldest. Hmm. I mean, it's not where it's water's coldest, but it, it's that density point. So you're getting all these sheets built up. And if you think about like uh, riding around on ice skates, those sheets are very slippery. So you'd have this slippery gel that all these logs are bobbing around on. <laughs> it is crazy. In the documentary you sent me, you can see video, like old black and white video of the logs going down these chutes that he made. And it it does seem quite fascinating that we'd have footage of that and then still not use it in practice. Well, so, I mean, the way that he used these chutes, it, it was used for many years in Europe. And the way he kept the water at that temperature was by he kept pulling off of the stream at certain points when the water started to heat up and kept it covered during transport and stuff like that, I believe, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Well, it was that documentary where he talks about saying that we only have half a water cycle. In school, you're taught, oh, you know, the sun hits the water, the water evaporates, goes into the clouds and rains down, and that's the water cycle. But actually, that's only one side of the coin, that there's actually a whole other component, that light component we were talking about, and it's actually necessary for the water to be basically in good health, quote unquote. And when you deforest an area, the forest actually helps regulate the light, I guess, to a degree. And when it doesn't have that forest, the river isn't as healthy as it could be otherwise. Is that right, basically? So it has to do with, for one, 
the shade helps to keep the water from evaporating. It also helps to keep it from being exposed to the sun too much, which deals with, so there's, you know, light can help it, but if you get too much light and start to heat it up too much, then you're, you're breaking down that structurizing effect. So you have to keep it at a cool temperature close to that four degrees C as possible from what Victor Schauberger says. And what was the other point you were asking about? Oh, just the other half of that water cycle. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the other thing is that's talking about surface water and air water, but then there's earth water. There's the water that soaks into the earth from the streams. There's water that soaks into the earth and then gets pulled up by the trees. And so when you remove those trees, you actually lower the water table and you reduce the amount of water that's available to the roots of plants. Because those trees help to basically raise the water table as their roots draw on the water. So there's that effect as well. And also the, the ground temperature. The higher the ground temperature, the lower the water table is going to be. Less vegetation means higher ground temperature, things like that. So Right. And, and that's so interesting. So I guess to give people a little bit of a visualization or to make this easier, we think of the water cycle as you know this loop where the water goes from its puddle up into the sky and maybe we should think of it more as a figure eight where it goes up into the sky but then it comes down to its puddle and then goes down into the earth and has a filtration process or some type of process and then would come back up to the surface and go back maybe we should think of it more as a figure eight yeah. rather than one yeah. cycle that ends at the the water puddle if you're going to talk about a lake or a stream or a river or whatever well, trees are critical, like that spring that was covered by that old shack. You know, once that shack was gone, that spring dried up. Mm -hmm. And you see the same thing with trees and springs on mountains. If you get rid of the trees, I mean, that structure had nothing to do with roots or anything like that. That structure was just keeping the sun off of it. Right. But that was enough. It really speaks to the interconnectedness of everything, not only nature, but of course, structures that we build. It's just everything is so integrated that one change, you don't even think about the implications of that. And especially when you look at the deforestation we've done, the changes we've made to the environment. I mean, we've trashed it. And it's more than just what you can see, because we don't even understand these mechanisms that are basically in ruin at this point. Yeah, and I think, you know, if we're going to have any chance of being able to to make it past the next 100 years or so, we're going to have to come to terms with trying, I mean, because we haven't tried to take care of the planet for the last few hundred years, really. I mean, we've just basically been looking at it as a big sink where we can dump wherever we want <laughs> and, you know, and be like, oh, Mother Nature will take one for the team. But we really need to start getting back to looking at ourselves as stewards of the land. I mean, there's kind of this baby boomer mindset of I'm coming along, I'm going to take whatever I want. And, you know, that's kind of it. And it's just like we need to get past that big time. It's just gobbling everything up, making everything disposable, saying, well, I'll get mine and whatever. That's not going to work. It's just not going to work going forward. We're destroying the earth to the point where we can't survive and the earth can't survive. I mean, the earth will keep going. 
even if it's just you know limping along for a few million years and then it starts to chug again as ecosystems rebuild themselves but you know if we're going to be around we need to really make some big changes and the way we think about our interaction with nature right right and just the eye-opening reality of rivers and just how many nuances and intricacies there are to the way the river flows the documentaries and it almost makes it seem conscious to a degree it's so interesting and then i guess this guy gorber is now making rock shoots in the river he's he's basically putting big boulders in the river to try to carry on victor's work and amplify the effects of rivers some of the things that we might have destroyed and he talks about creating separate ecosystems because certain animals certain fish require a certain water pressure and water flow to thrive yeah, in yeah. and you can actually make levels in the same river artificially using these natural principles and it really just speaks to engineering abundance it's just so damn cool yeah so basically what he was doing was he rather than building a concrete enclosure for the water to hit up against and just keep it contained sort of a strategy. Right. It's about rather than doing that, you allow the water to be where it wants to be, but you just help guide it so that it doesn't get out of control. You put these boulders in place to help guide the central portion of the river and keep it from drifting too far one way or the other, the, the actual heavy flow. And then you make these smaller zones where it's not as turbulent, fish can hide there under the rocks and stuff like that. And it gives these these little pockets of areas where the fish can hang out and poke around and not have to be in the in the full flow of the river and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. but basically the idea behind that is that you can let the river meander, but you would keep it in like one set meander. You wouldn't let it keep changing over the seasons and stuff like that. Now, that's good in terms of us being able to live with natural rivers, but in terms of the land, it's still that meandering of the river, letting it wander around had a big effect on the soil as well. So, you know, we're still kind of letting nature do its thing to a degree, but you obviously can't have a river decide it's going to go through your backyard. <laughs> every other year or something like that. It's just, there's some constraints that we have to make in order to keep our society functioning and moving forward. We can't just say, okay, we're just going to tear everything down. And, but we have to realize that maybe we've done too much in some areas as well. Right. And maybe there's things we can learn to work synergistically mm -hmm. rather than just trying to beat back nature the way we do in such a primitive way with big concrete dams and, all the stupid stuff we do. And I guess that documentary is called The Secrets of Water, if anybody wants to find it on YouTube. But even in there, I mean, they talk about vortex generators and motors that could possibly power a house. Finally, we have Elon Musk talking about his batteries that could power a house. But here we have principles in nature just looking, well, things that you could derive from observing nature, apparently, and these mechanisms could do the same thing and probably a lot longer ago. Well, I mean, Victor Schauberger was talking about this stuff in the 30s through the 50s, the early part of the 50s when all of this stuff got 
basically stolen by a Texas consortium with some German-sounding names in it. So Right. That's another <laughs> element, for sure. That's so interesting, too, the fact that right in that time period, we've talked about other things that involve German nationalists operating in early America. And here we have another possible thing where, again, it ties into the realm of sciences and suppression and Germans. Well, and I mean, there's also the fact that during the war, he was conscripted by the Germans as well. During World War II, he was working on the repulsing, which there's probably aspects of the Coenga effect in it. But also, from what I understand, there was also ionization of the air. And so he was working on anti-gravity vehicles for the Germans. And there's still models of these, and they look like these little UFOs. You know? uh -huh. <laughs> for people who aren't familiar, the repulsing is basically a anti-gravity engine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is something that, you know, nobody denies. Yeah, you can find pictures of it. Apparently, they have lost or misplaced or someone's hiding the working engines or Victor Victor's last engine. And the documentary goes into that a little bit, that it's kind of a mysterious story of where it is. It popped up at a conference once or some photos of it, some elaborate photos of it popped up at a conference. And then that guy disappeared. And who knows? But it's somewhere just beneath the surface. Yeah. You know, all this stuff, it always seems to just kind of fizzle out into mystery, doesn't it? It does. So, but uh, yeah, Victor Schauberger, if we were just able to recreate his implosion chamber, which was this egg-shaped vessel with cooling tubes and stuff like that, and he was able to basically make clean water and make power. And if you just had that, that's 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 enough for most people to, to be able to to you know do a decent job of making a living without being held over a barrel. If you have water and you have energy, then you can make food and you can make this and you can make that. And just having that base of something available that would alleviate some of the basics would go so far towards making the world a better place. But like you said, it gets gobbled up, disappears. Yeah, it's a sad thing, man. And on the subject of suppression with Victor Schrauberger's work in particular, I guess this Popple report is one thing that destroyed his credibility or a good chunk of it, right? Well, it should have actually boosted his credibility, but the professor who worked on the test wanted to gloss over the most interesting findings, which was that there at two velocities in this pipe. So basically this pipe was think of a regular pipe and then think of it having a spiral on the inside or veins on the inside to cause it to go into a vortex like you'd see going down the drain of your toilet or down the drain of your bathtub or sink. But at two different velocities during this test they found that the friction went down to zero or even below zero, which means if it has negative friction, it's being pulled along. <laughs> <laughs> so that means that somehow just having an induced vortex in the water, if it reaches these specific velocities, it will tap into the zero point energy. Hmm. It will be able to actually 
float along. So you don't, at that point, as long as you're able to maintain that velocity, then you don't need pumps. Huh. If you order things correctly in the way that you have things flow through hydraulic systems, you can have things going places without any pumping going on. And it, it just maintains the stable vortex as it flows along. Just by utilizing spirals in the plumbing, basically. Yeah. Huh. I mean, there, God, there's just so much we don't know. And, you know, when I recorded that episode with Dr. Judy Wood about 9-11 and the idea of secret technology used, towards the end of that, it got a little weird where she started talking about tornadoes and basically vortexes and zero-point energy and almost cavitation because there is a, a cavity in the middle of a of a vortex or of a, of a tornado. And just how that could be used technologically. And maybe that's connected in, to some degree, but it seems like in that same realm of spiraling technologies that are shown to us in nature that we just don't harness properly for our own energy needs. So the way that it's described by Moray B. King is that when you have these vortex formations and in a vortex, you have a stable structure and you're able to get high flow velocities within a self-contained unit, and you're able, by pulsing it quickly, you're, you're able to tap into the zero-point energy, and in these non-equilibrium sorts of formations that happen, start to tap into it when you disturb that structure, when you hit it really hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then you create these fluctuations in the background of space, the ether, and by being able to tap into that by separating the charges somehow, you can get this energy out and you can put it towards all sorts of uses, heating, cooling, levitation, you know, gravitation, all these different things that are results of the etheric vortex structure that underlies the atom itself. The atom are not billiard balls, little kind of moving around it's more like flows of ether that are comprising matter right man and yeah because she was with the tornado thing she was talking about if you look at the aftermath of the wreckage of a tornado you can find some very strange clues like transmutated material or wood that's been embedded in steel and th just that same kind of stuff like there's just weird things that happen, weird effects on matter within certain vortexes. And I guess it's just overlooked. I mean, it seems so fascinating that I want to look at more wreckage from tornadoes and see if I can find that kind of weird stuff. But I guess people just think, oh, well, it was moving at such a fast speed in that, in that vortex. I guess it just went right through. But a lot of it kind of defies conventional logic, I guess. Well, what you're doing is you're kind of like, unzipping the atom you know everybody knows that the <laughs> atom is is mostly empty space right yeah what's really holding this all together are these spins of these little what we call subatomic particles but what they really are these small forms of stable vortices of the ether and as you start to have this entrained ether that's spinning it starts to make all these other spinning things change how they're flowing and moving and so then you can get atoms interweaving with other atoms as this stress in the ether is embedded across the area and so you're getting into all this weird stuff like the hutchinson effect and yeah. 
things like that, you know. And you could go back to Project Rainbow and the whole, what was that ship that they had disappear and then reappear? Oh, uh, the Philadelphia Experiment. The Philadelphia Experiment and all that stuff. So The Eldridge. Yeah. I love it. I guess this would be the kind of stuff that would comprise the scientific field of alchemy and transmutation of matter if that was on the table whatsoever. Well, you do have transmutation of matter. It's just it's only allowed by fission and these certain, you know, they constrain everything so tightly that this is the only place you can look for this. <laughs> Anywhere else in it, it defies physics. But really, you can't hold observation to theory. Mm -hmm. Observation has to leave theory. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about this off the air, but it does get into that weird realm of our backwards nature to our sciences like they're almost all the methods we use are opposite from nature the implosion explosion fusion versus fission integration versus degradation and i find that interesting because of shows about science being derived from dark forces episodes with guys like chris knowles and the whole lucifer's technology perspective like if there was a group of trickster entities inspiring technological progression down a negative path this sort of syncs up with how opposite our methods seem to actually be from natural processes, couldn't you say? Well, that's exactly what Victor Schauberger said. He said, if you want to know the right way to do things, do it the exact opposite of the way we're doing it right now. And what he was talking about was the way we make energy is by blowing stuff up. And the way we handle politics is by blowing stuff up. You know, <laughs> it's coming from the same mindset. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So when you look at everything, whether it's nuclear power, I mean, except for, say, like, you know, solar cells, and that, that's, a, that's a different mechanism. But most of them are basically converting heat into some sort of rotational energy. And whether that heat source is coal or oil or whether it's the nuclear reaction, it's all driving heating steam. And then once you heat that steam, you put it through a turbine, and then that turbine runs a generator, and that generator gets you what you need in terms of power. But it's all this explosion energy. And what Victor Schauberger was talking about was a form of implosion energy. So rather than things diffusing themselves, expanding radially, then they're infusing themselves as they contract radially. And you get a buildup of structure rather than a degradation of structure. And it, it, it's what he called the science of ectropy versus entropy. That's one of his own words. And he had a lot of those. So I'm not going to really go much beyond that because they get really confusing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Fructogens and dinogens and, you know, stuff that it, it, it takes too much to lead up into the, the describing his verbiage. But Fair enough. You know, like you've said, there have been scientific councils that sort of battled it out and decided where science or medicine was going to go and where it wasn't going to go, right? I mean, that's happened. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's the same thing with trade councils and stuff like that. These are the ways, Council on Foreign Relations, <laughs> Council on this, everything, you know, it, it, this is the way that they guide things from the top. Mm -hmm. This is how this top-down structure commands what you can work on, what the boundaries are. And that's critical to keeping this stuff controlled. They're starting to 
you know, I, I've sent you some articles before, and they're starting to kind of let the genie out of the bottle with some of this science, but they haven't completely let it go, and they they aren't going to ever talk about the stuff that's gone on in the past. What they're looking at are finding ways to have this sort of stuff released in a controlled manner where they control some aspect of its production so it's still under their purview. Right, of course. So by framing it very narrowly in terms of this is an acceptable scientific understanding, you can say, well, this free energy device works because we can control this aspect of the manufacturing process or this or that, but this other one doesn't. (laughs) <laughs> even though they're working on the same principle so that that's mm-hmm. you know that's a lot of how this keeps people from really thinking about it it's just you frame it in such a way that it, it's oh that violates the second law of thermodynamics even though there are Nobel prizes and stuff like that that talk about things that violate the second law of thermodynamics you know <laughs> exactly you just make the box the parameters and then you just say well nothing can exist outside of here so why even discuss it yeah um, but and that happens a lot in engineering. I'm sure. Specifically, because they don't want them to think about, you know, the ramifications of zero point energy in physics. It's something that is known in physics. But if you keep the physicists from talking to the engineers too long, then the physicists won't come up with a way to actually tap into this stuff. And the engineers won't realize I need to think about how to tap into this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because there's the people who come up with the science of it. And then there's the people who create the devices that use it and just keep them separated. Like offspring said. Yeah. So to get back to Victor a little bit, you mentioned that Texas group that ended up with all his work and how that speaks to what we've talked about before. These pockets of post-war German networks, like the Sonora Aero Club would be another example of Pockets of German people working on secret technology outside of the realm of what's known. And I guess this is just another thing that points to it, right? Well, it it speaks to the fact that immediately after the war, I mean, you're talking within 10 years of the war, there's this consortium and, you know, whether it's paperclip Nazis or whether it's just some consortium that's been working behind the scenes or it's post-war German nationalists who are working with their partners in the U.S. to try and keep this stuff contained, we don't know. But it speaks to the fact that there were elements of the Nazi party and things like that that were operating within the United States during and after the war. And whatever this party really was, I think that they really were nazi related for one thing because he was conscripted by the nazis now victor schauberger he was probably the only scientist i've ever heard of who actually demanded good living conditions for his workers so like he refused to work for the nazis unless they treated his workers well Hmm. but that's the only one i've heard of where anybody made that request and actually had it granted by the nazis wow so Damn. You know, most people, they would have just said, screw you. We're doing what we want. You just drive them as hard as you can and hope we don't keep a gun too close to your head, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Man, so I guess to switch gears a little bit, we also were going to talk about Alec Bartholomew's book and 
some of his stuff about the ionosphere in particular, right? Yeah, well, so he's working off of Schauberger's material and what Schauberger and, you know, NASA confirms the stratification of layers between the Earth and the ionosphere. There's all these different temperatures that are stratified through the ionosphere and, you know, it gets up to hundreds of degrees and then it'll go down to like below freezing. And then in other places, there are these stratified layers where they're exactly at four degrees Celsius, which is this anomaly point of water. You know, if you think about it, that's kind of like a big capacitor. You've got this shell and these different layers that have different properties in terms of, you know, litting ions and things through them. So you're talking about this huge store of energy. And that's also, you know, Tesla was tapping into that with his Wardenclyffe Tower and stuff like that. And also, there's this theory of Schauberger's where he talks about cosmic fertilization. And he, he basically talks about how the sun in its light, it is fertilizing the earth. And there's this diagram where he shows the sun's rays coming into the earth. And then in the inside of the earth, in the very center, there's this re-radiation that's going on. And I think that that speaks to some of his understanding of how something like an internal sun inside of a hollow earth might develop. Right. Boom. There it is. <laughs> yeah. All this stuff, you know, it all kind of ties together. And we'll get into that a bit more when we get into the Edadorfa book and stuff. Right. So. And what else would you like to talk about before we do get into the Edadorfa stuff? Are there other things we've left on the table? Well... A lot of Schauberger's designs, they used uh, golden mean and golden ratio sacred geometry in them. So that was very important to him. Right. Again, nature. Yeah. You see that all throughout nature. So there's one thing that I would like to discuss, and that's just kind of for people to have an idea of what his recommendations were with regard to water, since it's something that's so ubiquitous and we all need it and treating it properly will help to you know, keep you healthy. So here's some of the key points that Schauberger points out. So water's enemy is excess heat and light. Water contains oxygen, a substance that's essential for the processes of growth and decay. Below a temperature of nine degrees Celsius, oxygen is used for growth above that to promote decomposition. So water should really be maintained below 48 degrees Fahrenheit about. As the temperature rises above 50 degrees Fahrenheit, the oxygen becomes increasingly more aggressive, promoting pathogenic bacteria, which can give us disease when we drink the water containing them. Tanker cistern that is above ground needs to be well insulated and painted white to reflect the sun's heat. If it's mostly below ground, the walls will not require insulation, but the top must reflect heat. Victor advised against using rectangular storage containers for water as they degraded the water and did not allow for its natural movement, although it might be difficult to source. The only container that allows for this movement is the egg shape. The material of containment is very important because water needs to keep cool and breathe. And the best materials are natural stone, wood, and terracotta. So that's just kind of some of his overall recommendations for water. Now, mostly what we do today is we add things to it, like chlorine, which degrades the water and stuff like that. And just the way we move water through pipes is also very damaging to the structure of water. There's 90-degree turns everywhere, and pumping it with our centrifugal pumps rather than centripetal pumps is very damaging. 
and and then we the way we transport it it's all open to the air the sun just hits it and degrades it on its way as it's being transported around states so we need to completely if we're going to live happy healthy lives one of the big things we need to do is completely restructure the way that we think about water and how we handle it and you know one of those things is actually you know every day i wake up and one of the first things i do is i pee in a in a nice big pot of water and uh (laughs) i think that, that we can find better things to do with it than to just crap in it and throw it away right there's a really funny meme about that with a kid in Africa who says, like, let me get this straight. You've got bowls of clean water piped right into your house and you shit in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, man, sorry. Sorry to say we do. Well, you know, back in the 19th century, the late 1800s, Paris actually had a completely vacuum based waste handling system for urine and defecation. Yeah. So basically, have you ever gone to the bank and sent your check over on a tube? Yeah, yeah. It's like, imagine having a vacuum that you just open up the valve and it sucks out your poop and it sucks out your urine. And then it goes to a place where, you know, a fraction of the water is used to convey it. Right. But that stuff, that was available since then. It's just everybody's gone to the water systems because it's less costly in terms of the equipment. Right. You just let the water flow and that carries it off. And if you need to deal with a clog, you deal with that. But the pumping systems for the vacuum was more intensive and stuff like that for those. Right. And we should, at a minimum, I guess, be using those spiral pipes. That would help out quite a bit, apparently. Well, I I mean, yeah, but it's verboten. It did, you can't do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, as long as you can't, then you won't, right? True, so. true. But there are people who are making those pipes, but without having a big retooling for that sort of thing, it's very costly to make by hand, which is basically the way it's being made right now by a few people. Right. And apparently we'd have to have much cleaner water because there was another guy, you sent me his work, Theodore Schwenk, I believe, and he talks about how pollutants affect the water in those vortexes or how it affects water vortexes, probably in a more natural state, but that's a big deal too, right? Yeah. So basically, one of the things that he looked at was pollutants from brewery and domestic wastewater and how that impacted the... So his tests were very similar to what is it, uh, Masuro Emoto's research, Uh. only with liquids rather than ice. So where Masuro Emoto would freeze water while somebody was projecting their emotions at it, or saying something, or just doing something emotive that would deal with the water, he was able to form different crystals and show that there was an effect there. Now, this is dealing with pollution rather than emotional pollution, say, that this is more of physical pollution, but it deals with how the water is able to structure. And so it, it similar to what Victor was saying about the temperature's effect on water and its capacity for life. He found that when pollutants were introduced, about six football fields downstream, the water's ability to vortex was just terrible. And it had bacteria and worms that that dominated the stream. So there wasn't much in the way of higher ordered life that could actually withstand living in that water. Yeah. So about a mile downstream, 
he found that the water was beginning to have lateral structure forming. He basically what he'd do is he'd drop a little drop of this water and then he'd have a picture taken at a certain point. And he kept doing those tests over and over again to see what happened when the water fell into a pool of water and how the vortex structures form. Because that deals with the structure of the water. And so by about a mile, he started to get some lateral structures, some side structures on the drop as it dripped into the water. And that's where larvae of insects started to develop. And a large part of the substances that were introduced had been degraded. So that kind of speaks to Victor Schauberger's idea of water needing to chew its rocks. Like he talks about water like it's living. He said that it needed to chew its rocks. So there was like a, a degradation step that needs to happen in the development of water, where it's transforming these materials into a less ordered state so that it can build it back up again. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of what's going on during this introduction of the pollutant. So the, the pollutant is being degraded and broken down. So it's mostly broken down within a mile. And then the water starts to develop vortices around two miles. Algae start to develop and aquatic animals are able again to inhabit the stream. And then by five miles, it's basically back to where it was in terms of the ecosystem being restored and not really seeing the effect of those pollutants. Now, keep in mind, this is just organic pollutants. So domestic wastewater, brewery water, so you're talking about yeast and food particles and stuff like nothing really that damaging or toxic. Right. When you start getting stuff that's even more toxic, like oil, and you know, different chemicals, then you're talking about stuff where it might take a lot longer for it to become degraded. Yeah, I mean, even the natural stuff is showing a huge influence. That alone is enough to be like, hey, why don't we stop that? I mean, you're damaging miles of the river. You don't think about it, I guess, because you're like, oh, well, it's relatively clean water we're injecting into it, but not from the river's perspective. Well, I mean, we aren't breathing it either. (laughs) Right. You can have it on your hands. It's not toxic or anything, but try and breathe that water in, you know, with all the food and stuff like you, you'll, you'll get fairly sick. (laughs) (laughs) And we should also probably break down Dr. Emoto's stuff a little bit, because I'm sure people have heard of it. Or once it's explained a little bit, they'll be like, oh yeah, I remember hearing about that. But it's something that science is thoroughly dismissed. I wouldn't even say debunked because of course we don't think that, but uh, I, I did consider this fairly hokey. Like I can't, ration in my mind why this would work or at least i had a hard time doing that up until we started talking about this show but talk about dr emoto and what he did exactly sure yeah i'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with this most people have heard of it and just kind of went well whatever but he would freeze water while subjects would pray say or otherwise provide intent for the water sample and then he would also play music samples as well And the crystalline water structure, the frozen ice, would then show different shapes or patterns based on the words or the structure of the music. And words that invoked empathy, love, beauty would produce highly ordinary, intricate structures as well as classical music. And words that invoked aggression, pain, or fear would produce ice that was seemingly disrupted and formless in its crystalline structure, as would heavy metal and things like that. And so... There is one thing I found that actually supports that with scientific theory. 
In 2012, researchers at Stony Brook University concluded that the volume of water of ice depends on the quantum zero-point motion of the H and O atoms in an opposite way from normal materials. Crystals shrink as they are cooled, but because of zero-point motion, shrinking stops before reaching temperatures of absolute zero. And so they called this quantum ice effect. And so that there are quantum effects that are going on during this freezing process. So the potential for those quantum effects to help order ice crystals, you know, there's starting to be some theory that could support that. Man. You know, I mean, his work was done, I believe, in the late 90s or something like that. But just now we're starting to catch up with what might be the causes. That's so crazy to think that you can take ice and you can say, I love you or fuck your mother. And the structure of the ice changes, I guess, to a degree. I mean, that's basically what he's getting at is intent negative or positive emotion actually has an effect on water structure. And that to me always just was like, nope, I can't go down that road. That just doesn't make any fucking sense. But you introduced to me the other day, you were talking about those early alchemists and how they used to talk about the mind element to transmutation, that there was some type of mechanism there. There was some kind of mental process that had an effect on what they were doing. And you could say that before they had the technological ability, the mechanical ability to do some of these things, there was a mind effect that people of a strong mind could maybe be better alchemists. I just think that it makes a little more sense now. It's kind of mind blowing, man. Yeah, well, they called the mind the inner fire. And so when you read a lot of I mean, all this stuff's encoded and it's really hard to decipher. But that, that was one of the things that stuck out to me was they keep talking about this inner fire. And to me, that speaks to, you know, this quality of the mind where you can be a uh, projected consciousness outside of yourself and go different places like remote viewing and things like that. And they've actually done experiments where they've had photomultiplier tubes at the target of something that was being remote viewed and they found that they could detect light so when somebody was remote viewing something they could detect light with a sensor huh. and it was very very small but that showed that there was something going on there and so i think that our consciousness by injecting intent especially once you start to get into kind of altered states of consciousness, you'd be able to open up this pathway between the conscious and the unconscious a bit more. Then you're able to take processes that would normally be impossible and you start to skew the way that these lower level interactions happen on an aggregate scale and you're able to make reactions occur that would normally be impossible. <laughs> and so, you know, it's something that I think is really at the root of our reality to a degree, but it also gets into alchemy and magic and all this other stuff that we like to talk about. Yeah. I mean, this is just so exciting for me because a lot of the stuff that gets talked about on the show I've been into for maybe a decade or more, and this is just pretty fresh and there's so many people who try to talk about alchemy as oh well 
it's all just symbolic language and it's about strengthening your mind. Yeah, strengthening your mind so you can do some real shit. <laughs> strengthening your mind so you can have some scientific effects. And it's almost like that's the disinformation. To say that there's no way, there's no area where alchemy touches real science is like, get out of here. Well, I think a lot of people, especially in the new age world, they like to think about everything being in your head to a large degree and, you know, our perspective and, you know, there's a lot of, let's say, manipulation behind the scenes when it comes to the new age perspective on the whole in terms of different institutes that have been set up who are being funded by the Rockefellers or this or that and, you know, stuff like mm -hmm. that. So, <laughs> so I think there is this tendency to keep it to the self-help realm, you know, because a yeah. lot of that stuff is just kind of like the self-help realm. And, oh, if I just envision that my life will be better, it will be better. And kind of keeping it in this fantasy mentality. Right. Keep it in areas where the results cause people to actually dismiss the phenomenon itself and the entire body of work. Yeah. But they know about this. And the whole mindset of it is, well, my psychology affects reality, but it's just... I, I, I there's there's pieces missing from the puzzle there. Let me just say right. that. <laughs> they make it seem arbitrary. Yeah, they make it seem either way. It doesn't matter. You know, it's all good. And, and that whole kind of like, well, if I just do my thing, I can ignore the rest of reality and just kind of, you know. <laughs> but really, you yeah, I, I don't want to beat too much up on the, uh, on the New Agers. There are some interesting things that, they know about, and obviously they, they aren't dismissing a lot of this stuff like the scientists, but let's just say I, I think there's holes in their philosophy. Right. Maybe their interpretation's a little off because they don't have the scientific background or the know-how to really put the pieces together, but they don't have a bad intention. A lot of them have intuitive understanding, but then I think there's also these levers of control that guide them into certain ways of thinking as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I wanted to ask you before we get into the weird stuff and dive into the deep end of the pool, just to put a kind of a capstone on this, uh, what will probably be up to this point, just what turns out to be the free show, just to make it all um, come full circle. But have you taken any of this research and done any experiments yourself, either by building a Victor S style device or by giving yourself vortex water to see how you feel, anything like that? Well, I've, I've done a little i mean in terms of vortexing the water if you want to do it like the rudolf steiner method of vortexing where it's kind of like an hour one way an hour the other way it's just a lot of work <laughs> <laughs> i have to make some equipment to do that sort of stuff i do want to get into that more basically for now i'm just using some i think it's called the spurling ring there was this guy, he, he developed these copper rings, which are supposed to entrain the ether, and they're in a double helix pattern that wraps around on each other at fractions of a qubit and things like that. So I, I basically use that, and I have a Berkey system, and then I put it into a copper egg-shaped vessel, but not really much beyond that. I want to make some organite water holders that are egg-shaped to help structurize it. And then I also want to add some motion to that, some sort of 
motion structurizer or flow structurizer or something. Huh. So this is like medicinal water in, in effect, right? Yeah. Well, you know, to really get it up to that level, you need to start looking into adding minerals and things like that, which is what, you know, basically when Schauberger had his system, he had, he had it where you added like a little packet of minerals and then it would flow all around. It had carbonic acid and stuff added to it to help break down the, the minerals and stuff. So he, he went way above what I'm thinking of doing anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that would be wonderful. But, you know, all that stuff takes a lot of work. Yeah. It takes a lot of work. I mean, it's not hard. It's really, it's very simple stuff. But none of this stuff is sitting on the shelves. I mean, just, just even finding a vessel that's egg-shaped of a decent size is hard enough. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just so sad because, obviously, we know the water that's pumped into our houses is polluted and some areas worse than others, of course. But then even the water we get generally is in these plastic bottles. And there's been more than enough research to suggest there's trace amounts of plastic in those water bottles is seeping into the water. So like the building block of life, the only sources we have are all just dead and polluted. Yeah. Well, and then there's fluoride. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> add it, add well, it to the pile. Yeah, that, that's, that's a whole nother... <laughs> into there but yeah yeah so if there's any hope for people living happy healthy lives this is something that's going to have to come under scrutiny mm -hmm. it's going to have to and you know when it comes to the work of joe pollock this easy zone that's just the first start of his stuff he goes into how it deals with protein folding cellular function muscular contraction cellular division microtubule polymerization mitochondria development, chromosomal development in the cell. So water structure plays a huge, huge impact in every single stage of cellular development. Yeah, there's a rabbit hole there. Yeah, think of it as like almost the electrical muscle of the cell, this pulsing, and you start to get into kind of orgone. And one thing I should mention is I, I misspoke in the first series when I was talking about Wilhelm Reich and his creating of these little bions. The bions weren't really bacteria. They were just kind of like these vesicles, these little spheres of material that was pulsing and it had gave off this light. Hmm. And that also seems to be supported by Pollock as well, because he talks about the first stages of a cell being made up of these different particles that are being held together by charge. And then they start to start to clump together, which is exactly what Wilhelm Reich was seeing in the formation of these bions. And then you get this conglomeration of matter that's forming a shell and it starts to glow. And what Reich said was it was pulsing with this orgone energy. And that was the beginning building blocks of a cell and life and things like that. And so if you think about that and you couple it with what we've talked about in terms of, you know, cavitation and, you know, DNA and stuff like that then you're also getting into some of the theories of Mark LeClaire because he found that when he was doing his experiments that these were the perfect conditions in these cavitating bubbles to create all sorts of different materials. And he theorized that the impact from all of these meteors and stuff like that on the primordial Earth 
made these double helix structures, you know, kind of creating elements all over the place. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, if you've got these these little balls floating around and you've got these double helix injectors that are shooting different molecules into it, he's saying that's kind of like the uh, crucible of life right there. Mm-hmm. You know? Amazing, man. Amazing. You're a great synthesizer of all these little different compartmentalized areas of research for sure. Man, we definitely have put together a hell of an episode here. It's pretty amazing that at least in the the earlier portion, the science we were talking about, the alchemical stuff seems to be so in tune with nature and so fundamental, but it's crazy. They've been able to keep it out of the mainstream for so long. And is there anything uh, else really we should do to wrap this thing up? Well, since we haven't, broached the subject at all i would like to talk just very briefly about dowsing because it's so related (laughs) yeah that's a weird art yeah so dowsing one of the most popular uses for dowsing is water witching you know finding water and what's using a rod or a pendulum or something like that something with a rhythmic movement to it or something that can twist in order to be able to do some sort of prediction or some sort of determination as to where water might be or, you know, other things as well. But we'll just focus on water for now. When it comes to dowsing, we've been talking about these quantum effects and things like that. And they're really dealing with these torsion, orgone energy streams. And all this is dealing with this rotational wave. And so when you're dealing with dowsing, one of the big things is that there is evidence that there's something going on outside of just the person manipulating things with their hands. There is an outside force that seems to be developed. So just a quick little speaking to that, there's this book called Aqua Video Locating Underground Water by Vernell Cameron, and that's specifically dealing with his orometer dowsing rod. It's a doodle bug. A doodle bug is basically a kind of a cross between a dowsing rod and a pendulum where something bounces around as it can spin and, <laughs> and find things. So Measuring the deflection of a dowsing rod on May 1st, 1963, exhaustive scientific tests proved conclusively that a powerful force outside the human body actually pulls the dowsing instrument in the presence of underground water. The test was conducted by qualified scientists at the suggestion of the Institute of Radio Engineers, for whom Vern Cameron had given a lecture demonstration at the IRC Hall in Los Angeles. Alvin Kaufman for the Lytton Company of Engineers and assistant arrived at Mr. Cameron's Elsinore home with a sensitive electronic recording machine designed to record by means of two moving styluses on a four and one half inch paper tape. This subject was covered in detail by James Crenshaw in a February 1965 article in Fate magazine. The specifically built device was a 12 inch aluminum arm with a vise at the top, a rheostat or potentiometer round mounted at the bottom carried a heavy pendulum to register the slightest deviation from vertical or from whatever position the arm was held with the dials adjusted for zero reading the torsion beam bending bar two stylite trace the record of the action of the switch as well as the 
the attitude of the bar and switch. The machine was set up to have a small cold water stream. Cameron had doused beneath his driveway. Wires ran to the water clamp, carrying a forked switch Cameron cut from a nearby fruitless mulberry tree. The first switch, while good for normal hand use and dowsing, kept twisting off the arm of the twig when clamped in the vise. The opposite end of the switch was carried on Cameron's open, upturned left palm. The torque on the first switch was not great enough with only one end to support the crotch, so Cameron cut a much stronger switch about 18 inches long with a one-quarter inch diameter at the clamp. This proved to be satisfactory. So in this experiment, he's essentially got the standard twitch you would cut off of a tree, in this case a mulberry tree, you know, that forked branch. Mm-hmm. You're clamping it in one side just to an angle meter, a potentiometer that changes resistance as the angle changes. And then he's putting the other side on his open palm, and it's twisting. And they're measuring the amount of twisting. And the twisting is so strong that when they put a smaller branch in, it twisted the branch off. (laughs) (laughs) So what's doing that? It's not his hand. His hand's open. It's not the vice. The vice doesn't generate any twisting. It just holds it. So the branch is moving on its own. There's this rotational energy that's going into this operation that's not being performed by the musculature of the operator. Wow. It's being done by their consciousness, I believe. Wow. So we're getting back into that consciousness aspect again. Huh. I mean, dowsing has always seemed weird to me, but I mean, it's been used for so long. It clearly works. Well, that's the thing is, you know, there's a lot of this stuff that it gets dismissed as superstition and this and that. But when you actually do try and come at it with a scientific mind that isn't prejudiced and you actually look at the evidence, then everything opens up. You're like, wait, there's an actual force here. What's causing that? (laughs) Wait, there's more. There's more. Yeah. (laughs) So and you got to realize that the ancient people weren't stupid. They didn't have all these complex systems, but maybe it's because they didn't need all these complex systems that we have today. Right. You know, we think that we're so smart because we're shooting radar into the ground and we're able to pick up things. But this is just somebody with a bit of something on a string or a stick, and they're able to find the same thing. Who's smarter? (laughs) Absolutely. Begs the question. And so we also wanted to give a little preview of future shows before we wrap this up. In fact, you wanted to take a break from this series and in a couple months down the line, do an episode that focuses on fascism, especially in light of recent events. But what would you say to get people primed up for what we got coming there? Well, we've been talking about the Germans and things like that. And a lot of these, you know, elemental stories and that's because there's definitely an aspect to you know involvement of germans and they definitely i mean obviously they have (laughs) they have some some impact on the subject of fascism as well but that's not a coincidence there's this undercurrent in united states history and politics which is hardly ever discussed and it's this kind of fascist angle. And we'll, we'll get into that more when we talk about things like the attempted coup of 1933 and Smetley Butler and stuff like that. I'm going to definitely send you some books. One of them would be the Nazi Hydra, 
that thing is a tome. It's just almost like reading a reference. <laughs> it's so thickly packed. Let me throw something in here because I was preparing for another show I was going to be doing with someone that will not be happening because they're a little bit too paranoid about the culture right now and how polarized everyone is politically and they don't want some things to be misconstrued. But we were going to do a show that talked about some of the weird aspects of Trump history. And it all spawns from the idea of that book, Baron Trump and his journey to the inner world. It's kind of a 4chan conspiracy right now. But there is a real book written in the days of Tesla in New York when they both were in that area. And it's a book written about little Baron Trump, Baron as a as a moniker, not as a, a first name necessarily, yeah. but phonetically, I mean, synchronistically, very similar. Yeah. Little Baron Trump and his journey to the inner earth. What? And <laughs> so what's weird about this, you, you yeah. would think this would just be a troll, right? You would think, but as you dig deeper, you find some interesting things. So Donald Trump has an uncle named uh, John G. Trump. And apparently you can find a lot of clips of, Donald sourcing John G. Trump, talking about how smart he was. He There's a quote where Donald says, my uncle John told me about nuclear before nuclear was nuclear and just all this weird stuff. But I remember that. Yeah. that Yeah. So interesting. But and then he says the most stupid thing you can about nuclear energy. <laughs> but, you know, well, yeah, <laughs> his uncle John was heavy at MIT. Like he went there for decades. He worked. He was an MIT scientist. And it's not long in the deep state when you're talking about secret technology and this kind of stuff before you get to MIT. And I actually went on YouTube and found a black and white archival video where somebody in radionics is actually interviewing him uh -oh. and <laughs> from his own mouth, man, he says some interesting stuff. He says that he used to work at Bell Labs when they changed the name from western something to bell labs like he was there at the time so that's a uh, an interesting footnote also he talks about a time when he was working on his thesis and he he hit a roadblock so he went to talk to vanover bush personally vanover bush oh man so he went to talk to vanover bush you're, personally that, that, i mean that's you're, you're talking about the heart of the <laughs> i know man and this is trump's yeah. uncle first uncle that, that he knows well and so I haven't even gotten to the, the most crazy thing. But anyway, so he gets to Vannevar Bush and Vannevar Bush's advice to him after hearing what he's working on on this thesis is, oh, you need to go talk to this other guy. He's got some wild ideas, but I've checked them out and they seem credible. And I can't remember the other guy. It's not someone that I'd ever heard about before, but he's talking about strange ideas that are a little bit off the radar for the scientific community. He's getting advice from Vannevar Bush on where to go. And here's the icing on the cake. When Tesla died and they recovered some of his material, the FBI hired a scientist to review that material and see if there was anything of use. That scientist was John G. Trump. He was the guy who took Tesla's stuff and then he gave a public statement that there was really nothing to see here. Oh, here, here's the quote. I wrote it down. Tesla's thoughts and efforts during at least the past 15 years were primarily of a speculative, philosophical, and somewhat promotional character. 
but did not include new sound workable principles or methods for realizing such results. So he basically says nothing to see here. This is the guy they hired. I mean, that's if you talk to any engineer today, that's what they say. Right. So there's the speculation that John G. Trump actually took Tesla's work and kept it private and publicly said there was nothing to see and that the Trump family is time travelers and that little Baron Trump is actually Donald Trump in a small in a in the real timeline and that he's gone back in time, gone to the inner earth, had this book written about him using Tesla's material. And obviously that is a crazy story. But what's also interesting is the real movie Back to the Future, Biff Tannen, Time Traveler, is based on Donald Trump. The the writer of the books, the writer of the movie straight up says he was based on Trump. So this all ties together in a really weird way. Wow, we have to go there. I <laughs> second half that we have for to sure. Go Absolutely. We'll hit up beast men and gods, but we'll have to do both of them in the speculative portion. Absolutely, man. So fascinating stuff. I love it. And of course, we're going to continue the alchemical series after we make that pit stop at fascism. But this has been a, a great time, man. I'm really loving these episodes. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I hope everybody else is too. I think so. For me, you know, doing all this research, I've had these ideas floating around in my head, but whenever I come back and revisit it to talk with you, just new stuff just keeps starts popping up, just left and right. And I'm just like, oh, gotta add this in, gotta add this in. <laughs> and you can see it like the way I email stuff, like, oh well, here's this and here's this. <laughs> it's a tangled web, man. I appreciate it. I see them coming in and I'm like, oh shit, he's firing off a lot of stuff at me that I'm gonna have to get into, but <laughs> It's important. But it's worth it. It's worth it. I think it's worth it. Yeah. I find with you and your audience, you know, a group of people who are willing to listen to my crazy outlandish theories. And (laughs) there's evidence here, but most people are never willing to look at it. Mm -hmm. Most people just the cognitive dissonance is so heavy that they don't want to go there. Agreed. You know, a lot of them, even if they do ponder something for a moment, they'll be like, what can I do about it? And then they just... Go go back to where they were. <laughs> well, I think you tie a lot of great stuff together, and these make some of the most unique podcasts out there. And obviously, I couldn't do it without you. Well, for a long time, I've kind of looked at the whole conspiracy world, and you know, except for a few shining lights like Graham Hancock. I mean, I know some people have their issues with him, but I really like his work. Then there's Joseph Farrell and a few others. Eric Dollard and some others, and they just really mm-hmm. stand out as sources of true information. There's a lot of other people out there where they get in their own way, even if they're trying really, really hard <laughs> to find the truth. Something about their personality gets in their own way where they just won't go that extra mile to say, am I being objective? Am I trying to root out all the sources of myself that could get into this. You know, I, I kind of think that we need to have a gonzo scientific community pop up and like a gonzo reporting community where, you know, cause that's what the whole claim to fame with what's his face. Uh, the guy who wrote um, fear and loathing. Hunter S Thompson. Hunter S Thompson. Yeah. The gonzo journalist. He said gonzo journalism was about recognizing that I am a part of the story. 
Yeah. Just like scientists need to recognize you're a part of the experiment. <laughs> you affect the experiment. If you are steadfastly against ever believing that there's a possibility that your mind could interact with this, then you won't see any evidence of it. And that in and of itself, if, if you could, you know, there, that's something that can happen mm -hmm. in this context. But if, if you're thinking outside of that context, you're like, well, obviously that's not going to happen. So, you know, it, it's this looking into a mirror thing, you know? Yeah. You got to be able to reflect on yourself and see how much of myself am I injecting into this? Am I really being objective or not? Right. You know, and that's one of the big things that just as in the scientific community, it also happens in the reporting community, the conspiracy community. People aren't able to get out of their own way. Right. That's something Gordon White's talked about a lot is data and interpretation. You got to separate the actual facts and data from the mouthpiece that's giving you the information because they always put a spin on it, like you said. Yeah. And I mean, I try and not put a spin on it as much as I can, but I'm still a person. I got a personality, I would hope. You know, I'm not a robot. So, right. <laughs> if you can even like the people who try to be conscious of it, obviously are doing way more than the people who are oblivious to it. I mean, when you're oblivious to it, it's just it's almost kind of frustrating to see. You know, you want to shake them and be like, hey, well, what if it's this? Yeah. You know, I like what you're saying, but what if it's that? But either way, you know how it goes. Yeah. But definitely send me whatever information you have about that Donald Trump thing. I'll take a look at it. Oh, I will. I'll send you all my notes from the show that never was. <laughs> but it'll be interesting it will be man it will be so yeah big thanks for bringing all this stuff to the table anything else you want to promote in terms of stuff people should follow up on or dig deeper into to get a clearer picture of these things we've been talking about well so remember my first podcast i was promoting the wilhelm reich documentary film yes that it got its full funding hell yeah so it's coming through. Good so, job, uh, listeners. I'm sure it's all you. We, well, we yeah, do what we can here at the Higher Side Chats. <laughs> well, you know, they had to do some subsequent funding and stuff like that. <laughs> but yeah, they, they made it up. Well, we're stoners, so we're slow to get in there and, <laughs> and take care of shit. <laughs> but yeah, it's being made. So I know it's probably going to be like another 18 to 24 months before it'll be released on disc. Mm. So it's a ways off. But, you know... It'll probably be available through the Wilhelm Reich Infant Trust or one of the other Wilhelm Reich organizations once it is. So that's something to just keep an eye out for. I just thought I'd give people an update. Heck yeah. Cool. And I assume, as usual, if people do have questions, maybe you'll try to engage in some correspondence on the Plus Sites comment section or in the forum? Well, I haven't been on there as much recently, like basically since Trump was elected. <laughs> yeah. This part, you know, I've had a lot of work and I've had some stuff I've been doing at home to try and fix some things that I've had going on in my own projects. And so probably after we do this fascism podcast, I'll be on there a bit more. But leading up to that, just because there's going to be so much material for that one as well, I'm probably not going to be on the boards for a while. Yeah. Fair enough, man. Well, very cool. Once again, you killed it. Thank you so much. Take care. And I guess we'll be talking in just a couple of months if we make it through. Sounds good. Oh, wait, wait, hold on. Oh, one thing. Yes. Since we had that talk before about the eclipse and Trump's job change and all that, and we should just really briefly, especially since <laughs> it happened in the last week, we should talk about all this, you know, Nazi stuff that, that's been going on. I mean, 
pretty crazy. And as for, for people who, just so you know, we're recording this show the day before the eclipse. So we could be in for a whole new world that by the time this releases. <laughs> but it's been crazy already. And you hear about people and hysteria and lunatics, and it's all tied to the full moon. And there's that whole mythology. But if you take eclipses, and there's also a similar mythology there. Leading up to this eclipse, people are acting crazy. Oh, definitely. Well, there is the whole series of protests around the Robert E. Lee statue. And then one of the counter protesters gets run over. And he takes so long to make any sort of statement about it. And then, it, you know, it's a bit ambiguous when he does. Right. And then like a day or two later, he's texting and he retweets that he's a fascist, and then he, he retweets something where CNN's getting run over by a train. He's letting go his main strategist and Bannon, and <laughs> and then the whole economic councils and stuff like they're all getting disbanded. And <laughs> the power is leaving the room. That's basically mm -hmm. what I see happening right now, and that's what the Young Turks are predicting that within the next six to eighteen months. Six being the more likely outside, but 18 months being the far, far outside. But anywhere between one and six months, they're predicting he's going to be out. He's going to resign for one reason or another that he gives. Yeah, I mean, I'm right there. I, ever since Austin Kopic on the astrology episode talked about this eclipse and what it means with Trump's natal chart to suggest a career change for Trump. I mean, ever since then, I've been spouting off about that, telling people, hey, just wait, it's going to happen. And I've got a buddy who every time I get caught up in one of these predictions of one of my guests, he writes it down and he makes me sign it. And then when something doesn't happen and the economy doesn't collapse, he calls me out on it. And what's unfortunate about this is it's not something that's pegged to the day. You know, these astrological changes create windows. Yeah. So it could be six months from now that, Trump actually leaves office and people are going to say, well, that had nothing to do with the eclipse. And it's like, well, how often does a president leave office so soon into his first term? I mean, not often. And I mean, in terms of shitstorm controversies, this is the Trump card. You know? <laughs> the mean, Trump card, indeed. You want to talk about Nazis marching through the streets in front of synagogues? And there's the Book of Revelations line about the uh, the end of the world will be ushered in with Trump pence. Oh, no. What? Trumpets. Oh. <laughs> That's funny. It is, man. And the way he reacted, I mean, unless you're really a hardcore supporter, you got to realize the way he reacted was just so flat, you know. I mean, <laughs> and saying, what are we going to do now? Pull down Washington's, you know, monument. It's just getting to level of ridiculousness that is it's cartoonish it's cartoonish at this point you know right well considering how much deep state funding talk there was around the trump election realizing that his uncle was very embedded in the mit nexus and also i looked at uh some stuff from walter bosley since you first brought the charles delshaw saga into my sphere of influence he actually talks about that, too. And what's weird is that apparently multiple machines in the Charles Delshaw artwork are labeled Trump. And apparently the man who is credited with creating those arrows, his name was Homer Trump. 
So, yeah, man. And another thing is the ones that say Trump on them are numbered in a series uh, 4,500, Donald Trump, 45th president. What? (laughs) Okay. I got to bring out my belt shop book and look at some of those paintings. Yeah, you should look at that because maybe there's some, you know, you have a a, a source because you can always go back and change things later or make one that looks the same but says Trump on it and then put it in your blog. But if you've got a hard copy, definitely take a look at that. Series 4,500 of photos and see if you see stuff with Trump written on it because he might be a liaison to a deep, deep undercover cult of weird alchemists and arrow craft flyers that are German in nature. Well, you know, I mean, one thing that came up briefly during the election that a lot of supporters dismissed was the fact that, you know, it was stated during his divorce proceedings that Ivanka saw him go to sleep reading Adolf Hitler's speeches. Damn. That's pretty damning. <laughs> you know, I, I brought that up to people and they said, oh, well, that's a divorce proceeding. You can't believe anything that's said in that. I'm like, well, actually, that's probably one of the best ways to get dirt on somebody. <laughs> It's right. to have their pissed off wife spouting off in the middle of the courtroom. Yeah. <laughs> I'll definitely check that out because I, I have the book with all the, I don't know if it, it's not all of them, but like a lot of the original prints that were sourced for the Del Shout book. Yes. I have that book of prints of those, so I can look at that. Yeah, it would be great to get that confirmation. And then if, if I find something, I'll send you a picture and maybe you can post that. Absolutely. And there's there's even more to this, dude. There's so much to this, but we're about to set a record. We probably we actually have. Actually, that's copyrighted. I don't know if we. That's be able fine. To post we won't that, post but... it, but let me know so I know. We, we we can source it at least. We'll figure it out. It'll happen. But man, we've definitely set the record for longest episode of THC, which I just appreciate. But I've got to eat. <laughs> I've got to eat. I haven't eaten today. I haven't eaten either. <laughs> All right, man. Okay, well, take it easy. I love it. Definitely. Great time. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. And boom goes the dynamite, people. Shaman Janir, once again, hell of a guy, hell of a show. I hope everybody's liking the series of secret science shows. They are a little different because Shaman just sends me books and presentations and lectures that are related to a given element, and then we talk about them. I also try to stay conscious of the fact that you guys need context. It can't come off like two guys talking about a movie you never saw. So we always try to lay a good base there. But we also include everything we've talked about in the show notes. So the links are always there. But it is more of a synthesis of material than most episodes. I know we're a day late also, but everybody gets an extra hour. And I think that's something to celebrate at least. Because me and Shaman ended up taking two hours just to get through these scientist guys and all their interesting work and the experiments that have been done around water. So if you cut it off there, that's really like a typical higher side plus show. Two hours chalked to the brim of interesting shit and everybody gets that today. And then in hour three, we pretty much went a completely different direction by focusing on this book at Adorfa and a few other pieces of sci-fi fantasy stuff that relates to the inner earth and these properties and lesser-known states and structures of water that actually helped to make the case that these stories might be truth wrapped in fiction. 
because the idea that they guessed so right about a few of these things is fairly unlikely, so maybe we have some real elements at play. And as me and Shimanjineer do more episodes, a rhythm does start to emerge. After the first one, we decided how to flesh out the series, and then after the last one, we figured out how to split the show up into the secret science and data up front, and then that becomes the structure upon which we build that latter speculative portion that becomes the plus show. I think that just works out really well. So if you liked the first two hours, consider that any other week with THC, you'd only be hearing half of that. You're leaving a ton of great material on the table for five bucks. But this week too, you also would have missed the Editorfa hour. So consider signing up for Plus. You know the drill, the thehiresidechatsplus.com. But that said, guys, water! When you check out the stuff that I did for this show, or hopefully just listening to it explained was helpful, but this is very real and suppressed stuff. Like, there is no guessing. I saw the charged water structure form a bridge supported by nothing. The DNA memory stuff has real results. So I think this is just a much cooler and more interesting subject than I might have even a month ago. We all know how much of us is made of water. We don't think about water structure or the health of the water that we put into our bodies very often. I think our actions are probably proof of that, right? But what if you could treat water with all these fairly simple methods like vortexing and have it be like Popeye's spinach? And of course, the energy applications are pretty great too. The cavitation material is really interesting. Just all around stuff I don't hear about very often. So big thanks to him for bringing it to the table. It takes a lot of work and time to gather this material and your thoughts about it. And then to sit here with me for three hours, who wants to do that? (laughs) I also saw an interesting headline on Reddit today, a little bit of a synchronicity, but it sort of ties in. It was on the Futurology sub, which is one of my favorites. And it said that scientists have succeeded in combining spider silk with graphene and carbon nanotubes, a composite material five times strong enough to hold a human, which is produced by the spider itself after it drinks water containing the nanotubes. So there you go. Just by drinking treated water, the spider can do this. I mean, what could we do with it? Is it maybe a less invasive and natural way to geoengineer or even bioengineer our bodies? Because it sounds like it could be. And what this whole episode got me thinking about was legends of fountains of youth and magical springs and how this could all relate to perfect conditions in the environment. Maybe the light hits it just right and the water flows in the optimum spiral and the charge builds up. You know what I mean? I think it's possible. And not only was this episode long, but you basically got a crash course in all the material that I had for the time-traveling Trump's Baron and the Inner Earth episode that I guess isn't going to happen. I do think it's pretty crazy that nobody I saw during the election was talking about Trump's uncle literally being the guy to assess Tesla's papers. And if that wasn't enough, I mentioned Walter Bosley had added that Trump is actually on some of the Delshow drawings of the Sonora Aero Club, Well, Shamanj confirmed that because he has a hard copy of the book of artwork, and sure enough, it's there. Maybe there's no way to link the family trees together, but Trump is not a common name, and especially not in the small pool of people working in science at that level that are German immigrants at the time, right? I don't know. Some people even say that the name Trump is made up, so who's to say? But there is a ton of speculation there built on a pretty interesting set of real facts, from the Baron Trump books and the Aero Club artwork to his uncle, Tesla, and Back to the Future. Either way, 
maybe we will get Walter back on. It really is his material. It's his blog that I learned about the Del Shao Trump connection. And I think a lot of people enjoyed the last one we did. So maybe we should do that. I think that'd be fair. I also have to thank everybody out there who answered my call about web hosting and needing a new server. I got a lot of great responses and I have multiple generous people helping with the back end and technical aspects of this business because it is a business. And traditionally, I like to keep everything in house, but that's risky when something happens that's over my head. So I asked for a little help and man, I got it. I will say I was really shocked by the career positions of some Higher Side Chats listeners out there. Jesus Christ. Some of the resumes I got are listeners who work in IT or data analytics at some huge companies, some who are lead engineers at major web hosting companies too. So I was like really humbled to get such high quality responses. I ended up going with a guy who is a little more independent, but also has an impressive resume and he's going to be making some moves and optimizing the THC infrastructure. And so far he's been really great. And I think we have almost all the little issues worked out. Also, big thanks to other podcasters who helped me out and gave me some contacts or just felt my pain. Apparently, our good friend Jen Briney of Congressional Dish, she was with Bluehost too and finally ended that nightmare. And Gordon from Those Conspiracy Guys, he got in there and tried to work out some redirects for me and helped out a lot, offered a lot of great support to me in my time of crisis. So I do appreciate the solidarity, guys. You both put on really excellent shows. But that pretty much does it for me. I think you guys are going to love what we got coming out on the roster for September. We're getting into a recent surge in Chicago cryptid sightings. We're getting into predictive magic. And we're getting into the 5G attack on everything. It's going to be a wild ride. I'm also going to have Chapter 2 of the Armenia Adventure on your desk by the end of the month. And that is a Carlwood promise. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to my man, Shaman Janir, for sharing such unique stuff. And I'll see you next time. Your move, water wizards, science suppressors, and agents of the alchemy quarantine. Your fucking move. Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at seven And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your nine to five You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the higher side chats You get to your desk And your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows To a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around You insert a SETI sound the OM says turn it down And you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'd be invited To Bohemia Grove To a Bilderberg Club Oh, do you think you'd be invited By a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down To the center of the earth To the Marianas Trench your teeth begin to clench from the sulfurous stench. The mask you're given doesn't fit, cause you're not one of them. Starting today, you'll make plans to get away. There's no one to hold you down, and the what if start to drown. Then you wake to the glare of a cold fluorescent stare, and the light winks at you, cause its life is almost through, but it's holding on to quit time just like you. It's time for the high side chats. Yeah.
Thank you.